I'm Steve Backshaw, and you're listening to the Aussie Wildlife Show. All right, guys, welcome to the Aussie Wildlife Show. Adrian here, and I'm here, of course, with Steve. Hey, guys. And we're very lucky today to have with us James Smith. James is the owner of For Nature and the author of The Wildlife of Greater Adelaide. Welcome, James. Thanks, boys. Great to be here. Mate, this is a fantastic book. I've had it for a while. How long did it take you to make this book, The Wildlife of Greater Adelaide? It actually took from go to woe about nine years. Um, yeah. Went into uh, Chris Daniels. I'd been a student of Chris Daniels uh, the year before, and I'd come from Brisbane and was up in Brisbane. Went in and saw Wildlife of Greater Brisbane. And being aware of how connected people in Adelaide were to the wildlife that surrounded them, I thought, this city needs a book like this. Um, so I went in the next week and put a copy down on Chris's desk and said, Chris, I've got your next project. You need to do this. And and any of, any of the listeners that know Chris over a glass of wine or three, we sat down and had a chat and he loved the project and said, right, I'm on board. And I was expecting to maybe assist and, and help with the project, not actually drive it. And, and Chris's parting comment is right. When do you start writing? Uh, he turned it on you. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and in hindsight, I'm, I was incredibly daunted because I knew, I guess, I know an awful lot about um, many of the species of wildlife, but I was concerned I didn't have the depth knowledge required for each of the groups that were in there. And, and we talked it through and said, look, there are many experts out there and we can extract that information and they're sure to tell you if you've made errors or how we can correct it or improve it. And he was absolutely right. As we went along, many of the experts either uh, from Adelaide, farther afield in South Australia, or even some of these, we had to go interstate because there's not the expertise in South Australia. They were incredibly generous with their time to bring out the product that we finally published. But yeah, it took about four years to write. And another good friend of mine said, you're probably almost halfway through the process. And I just looked at him and said, I hope you're wrong. But he was spot on again. It was, yeah, five years later, it finally was launched. It's a fantastic book. It's a book that I think every school should have and practically every house, anyone that is interested in the environment. And what brought you into being someone that just really cares about the local environment and really wants to educate and get the word out there? That's that's a fascinating question. And and having listened to some of your earlier podcasts, what triggered people, I was always attracted to animals like other people. I'd have turtles or go and collect lizards, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I had no idea what I was going to do at school. But I did really well at biology. It was just something that clicked and made absolute sense. So... Um, finish year 12, well, I don't know what I'm going to go to university and ended up studying biology and wanted to be a marine biologist. But the more I got into marine biology, the more I realised how much I really enjoyed terrestrial species and spent a lot more time with terrestrial species. And while I loved the marine environment, just even early on, there was a big connection to organisms in and around where people are and that interested attracted excited people whether they realized it or not i went over to uk and ended up spending almost 15 years in the uk and uh, i'd worked early on in my career 
in the information centre of, or the reference centre it was called, of the Queensland Museum. And I worked there for about five or six years and my areas of interest were really mammals and marine. And, and so members of the public would bring up or come in and show us specimens and say, what is this? And I'd answer those questions for them, part of a team that did that. But all these people kept coming in and asking me about birds. And I didn't know much about birds at all, which was really frustrating. So I decided one weekend I'd have to go out and start looking at birds. And I took a bird book out and I was working about 12 hour days. So I used it as a break at the end of the day when I was having dinner. And the fantastic thing was I'd been immersed in other wildlife, but never as much as bird life. And by immersing myself in bird life, everything else dropped away. You just become so in the moment. And that to me is what wildlife is about being, the world stops, whatever, be it um, a skink or a lizard, be it a peregrine flying through, lying in bed at night, hearing a boo book, make its call, all of a sudden, everything else melts away and you are just very present and in the moment. And it's a real calming, it's a real fulfilling, it's a real exciting space to be in. And I just thought, I want more of this. Beautifully said. It's mm. yeah. so a reminder that you are part of it. You are part of that environment, part of the wildlife. Absolutely. I mean, we are, we impose ourselves on the world around us but we, and we can't remove ourselves from it. And often day-to-day pressures mean we ignore it, but we ignore it at our peril because we get so much benefit from it. Um, the biophilia hypothesis, people, when they get ill, actually return to health much quicker if they're exposed to even being able to look over a green space or a park as compared to a brick wall. We have natural connections to the cycles because we have been involved in the cycles of the season and wildlife for hundreds of thousands of years. And it's really only been in the last century that we have slowly moved away from that. I think it's been in this decade that half of the world's population now live in cities. 85% of Australia lives in cities and I guess one of the other reasons I tend to work in a city space is I love opening people's eyes to the wonders of wildlife that is around them and most people don't realise just how much wildlife we share this little corner of the planet with. You make a really good point I mean I watched everybody watches David Attenborough and these amazing docos all over the world these exotic places but he did one um, I can't remember what it was called it was the one where they looked at invertebrates and a lot of the species they were showing were things that are just in your backyard and they were fascinating things happening in everybody's backyard right now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have, I think across the state, something like 400 species of native bee and none of them are colonial as we think of honeybees. All of them are either, most of them are solitary, a few of them are social or semi-social bees. We have a similar number of moths around Adelaide If you left one square metre in your backyard to grow and do what it wanted to do, you'd probably get 100 spiders just in that square metre if you don't disturb it over a period of time because so much comes in and is attracted to it. I've been watching some aphids on a rose in the rental property I'm in and I'm saying, how long will it take for ladybirds to come and start feasting? And I'm thinking, should I wash them off? No, I'll just wait, I'll just wait. And this morning for the first time, 
a ladybird turned up and started feasting on the aphids. Oh, that's great. It is. Just that complexity that we take for granted and walk straight past, and it's only when you know it to look forward. Even I this morning, I was excited about this tiny beetle walking around on this leaf, but I'd been anticipating this for the last four weeks. <laughs> That's awesome. I remember when I first started getting into you know, studying plants and nature and I was living in a unit in Eden Hills and I didn't have a garden. I was an upstairs unit with a little balcony and I had a pot plant. Uh, it was a bottle brush. It wouldn't have even have been a native one. And I saw my very first eastern spinebill on that pot plant coming to feed from the nectar. Was it a fuchsia or was it a choria? It was just an actual uh, calistamine bottle oh, brush. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. and I knew the bird and I had the, I was on a date with a girl who'd come over for dinner um, and I was just like, oh, my God, oh, my God. I was so excited. She didn't get it. I, I knew. I knew. I was excited. Um, and it never worked out. But that, <laughs> it's funny you said about the square metre. We had Chris Day from Sustainable Everyday Living and he talked about organic gardening. We did a podcast talking about sustainable agriculture and growing your own food in the backyard and he said people can start off with just a meter by meter area and grow their own food and see how that goes and just keep it weed free and see what you get from it and if you like it extend it and i think you could apply that to a habitat garden couldn't you certainly for invertebrates maybe butterflies you could target there's a brilliant book attracting butterflies to your garden done by the butterfly conservation society of south australia most people don't realize that the biggest issue with butterflies are the caterpillars. Everyone loves butterflies, but most people don't like caterpillars. And yet most of the caterpillars of our butterflies don't feed on anything that you're going to be concerned about in the garden. And indeed, planting target host species for those caterpillars mean you attract the butterflies because they'll lay their eggs and you put the right sort of flowers in association with it. In a really small space, you can attract some wonderful mobile, colourful species to your backyard. That's a really funny point. I can imagine somebody saying, I've just planted this butterfly garden and I've got these caterpillars eating my leaves. <laughs> I can, like, can you imagine? Because Zeta, my wife, is doing all of these things at the moment. She's putting a little native garden together to attract butterflies. Fantastic. And probably two or three metres away, she's got a veggie patch. So I think, yeah, that might upset her at some point. The one that's most likely to upset her is the cabbage white, and there are things you can do about that, and they're much more interested in things like brassicas than they are interested in the sorts of species you're going to plant to attract the local okay. species because many of the caterpillars are really host-specific as far as their plants are concerned. So she'll be all right. She'll be all right. I'm a bit upset by that. <laughs> <laughs> One of your passions is nesting boxes. We mentioned that you own a business called For Nature, and that's F-A-U-N-A-T-U-R-E for anybody looking online. You guys do sell nesting boxes. I've got seven of your boxes around the property, and um, you so kind made one for us many years ago which we display squirrel gliders in with Animals Anonymous. Fantastic things. If people are looking at attracting wildlife to their gardens, a nesting box is a great start. It depends very much where they are and it's fascinating because as far as hollow dependent fauna is concerned, many people wouldn't realise that about one in three of our terrestrial mammals rely on hollows. Of our microbats, two out of every three rely on hollows. Batman, most people think of bats and caves in Australia. Most of our species rely on hollows. They don't rely on caves. In fact, I think of the 28 species of bats we have in South Australia, two are obligate cave users. About another six 
We'll use caves as well, but most of them rely on tree hollows, exfoliating bark, that sort of thing. They can also come into houses, but really important. And something like one in six of our birds, so about 15% of our avifauna, again, are reliant on hollows. So in excess of 300 vertebrate species across Australia rely on hollows. And those hollows take many decades to develop, and we just don't appreciate it. Often, until relatively recently, removing old trees for firewood, really popular, building, very important, clearing of land for agriculture or pasture, etc., also very important, but also in urban spaces because they are seen as a potential risk, often removed. Fortunately, thought processes are changing on that and many of those trees are being retained because their worth to the ecosystem locally is being recognised. But if we take out those habitat, those hollows, we potentially lose whole suites of species. You said it takes decades for these trees to develop hollows and that we're talking about urban areas and we tend to live in a higher rainfall part of the country. Most of this country is quite dry. Would it be right to say that it's even longer again in the arid regions for hollows to develop, like in the Mallee? Sure. Look, I, I can't honestly answer that question. I would think, given the size and how long it takes Mallee to grow, that is probably true. But then often there are other events that will facilitate that because development of hollows in South Australia primarily occurs in dead timber. So within the tree, you have heartwood, which is dead, and then you have sapwood around that, which is alive. And the two principal hollow-creating organisms are fungi and termites. So none of our terrestrial vertebrates create hollows in the first place. If you go to North America, things like squirrels and things like woodpecker can actually create their own hollows in certain trees. Nothing like that can happen here in Australia. And 90% of our hollows actually occur in eucalypt species. So it's actually these invertebrates. You throw in four or five families of beetle larvae, four or five families of moth larvae, bacteria, help this decay process take place and um, create a hollow within the tree. But that hollow within the tree is only then available or accessible when it's exposed to the outside. And that typically means an insult or an injury that happens to the tree. So a limb falling off as because of a, a severe weather event, high winds, a really hot day where a red gum might drop a limb or something like that, or a fire. But in urban environments, there are concerns about these dropping. So historically, as I said, often they would be removed to remove that risk. But it takes... In an average eucalypt, probably somewhere between 120 and 150 years for a hollow to develop. And for something the size of, say, a yellow-tailed black cockatoo, we're probably talking perhaps 250 to even 300 years. So when I'm speaking in schools, I'll often ask them, just imagine if you're on the buffalo in 1836, you stepped off and the governor asked you to plant a tree, you planted a eucalypt, it would now have hollows in it but those hollows probably wouldn't be large enough to even house a brush-tailed possum, certainly not large enough to handle any of our larger species of owls or something like one of our big cockatoos. So we are talking hundreds of years in planning to retain these sorts of habitat, and yet we're removing them. It can be about a huge tree can be removed in part of a day. That's incredible. It's so sad that we're still removing these big old trees. 
Habitat clearance is still the biggest threat to hollow-dependent fauna. And when you look around, I mean, we're lucky in our countryside we still do have some big old river red gums, but that was really good fertile land, so we don't have the understory vegetation to go with it. And it's often also changed the water regimes because that would retain with that extra vegetation that as 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 the um, waters would meander and they'd often break banks be fertile often now we have channels certain in urban environments and we want to get water from one place to another as quickly as possible to cut out those flooding events which much of the landscape relied on mm. Now, you've been making nesting boxes and you've been catering to a variety of species. Have you had any real successes and surprises in this process? It's, it's fascinating. Part of the reason I do it is I love being able to sit there and experience wildlife doing what wildlife does. Um, for many years, I lived on the Hills Face Zone in Adelaide and we had a kitchen that looked unfortunately directly at a, a pine tree and we had the all the eucalypts were behind our house and we had pine trees in front they were actually oh, back well before it was um, became urban it was pasture land and they were put up for shade trees so over time we were planning to remove them but in the meantime uh, pine trees don't have hollows so it was a perfect opportunity to put up a host of hollows so about 15 meters from and at eye level from where I sat and had my coffee every morning, we put up this nesting box. And for nine, 10 years that we were there, every year we had a pair of Adelaide Rosellas come and nest. And one year in 2010, we actually put a camera inside the box. And um, how quick animals can respond if a resource is limiting. I put up this box on a Friday night and then first thing Saturday morning we went off on a camping trip for a week and I didn't get back till the next Saturday morning. And the first thing I did was go down and have a look at the camera, which was a video feed inside the house, and there was a hen bird sitting on the on <laughs> sitting in the box. And I got, wow, that's only a week. And I was really excited. But about an hour later the hen moved off and there was an egg there. About three hours later when she moved again and I was checking back pretty regularly during the day, a second egg was laid. And we know that Adelaide Rosellas lay their eggs somewhere between about 22 and 26 hours. Uh, sorry, um, about uh, two days apart, so give or take two or three hours. So the next egg came at about midday. So that told me the first egg was actually laid back on the Thursday. So this box, they only had access to it from the previous Saturday. And in five days, the pair who had obviously formed, found, decided this hollow was appropriate for them, had mated and laid the first egg. <laughs> That's quick. It is incredibly quick. We have had, in fact, um, just up at Ashton, about three weeks ago, we put in some nesting boxes and I got a call five days later saying there were already three pairs established in each of the three boxes. So at the right time of the year and in the right location, it can happen incredibly quickly. That's funny you say that because I mentioned we put up the possum boxes very recently and I've had Adelaide Rosellas checking those out. Will they utilise ring, your ringtail possum boxes? It does depend on whether there are any other options. One of the things about there are different size boxes because... Different species have different requirements. And often, just imagine if you were to put 
um, your bedroom was the size of a football field and you had your bed in the middle of that football field. So every night you retired, went to bed. Would you feel comfortable going to sleep in the middle of that football field? Not really. No. (laughs) And, And so most animals won't. Most animals want a space that's just large enough for them with room to do what they need to do, but not much larger because that's uncomfortable. Uh, Certain species also need a certain amount of depth in the box, uh, particularly things like parrots, because species such as currawongs or kookaburras might take eggs in the case of currawongs or fledglings. So they like quite deep boxes, but most species want an entrance that's just large enough to allow them to squeeze through, but will keep out anything larger because something larger is potentially a threat. Ah, makes very so it sounds like you have to put a lot of work into into the past just so that you know what size box and everything to use for different things because i notice on your website you've got bat boxes bird boxes possum boxes ring tail and brush tail so there's fortunately there's been lots of research over many years unfortunately much of it there's bits and pieces so we don't know a complete story even about something like the brush tail possum Out in the wild, it will choose probably somewhere between four and six hollows, and it will move between them. It might spend most of its time in one location, but this is in natural hollows in a natural environment. And we don't know why it moves or what attracts it to one location or another. So that sort of science is still waiting to be investigated. But we do know the size with natural hollows Typically, they are in living trees. We historically, when you and I were growing up, we said, oh, we need to retain all these dead trees. Well, I found out that much of that early work on hollows actually came from the arboreal pine forests in North America. And pines, the hollows tend to occur in the dead trees, not the living trees, because the sap is really corrosive. But the pine is really soft once the tree dies, so it's easy to make hollows in, which is why they have hollow-creating species. But not here. 90%, as I said earlier, of our hollow-dependent fauna rely on eucalypts. So we've got the size down, Pat, but why they choose a specific location over another, we don't know. And one of the benefits of being in a living tree in a eucalypt is because if trees get hot, they transpire to keep themselves cool. If it's a cold day, certainly Australian Aborigines up around Melrose, there are some scar trees up there and they, during cooler months of the year, would often take refuge or shelter in those scar trees. So humans use the insulative properties of hollows in in large trees exactly the same way that wildlife do. And there was some cursory work done up at Arbury Park which is an outdoor school just up the road where they found on a 40 degree day inside a hollow in a living tree the temperature was about 28 degrees and on a really cool day so less than five degrees it was something like 12 or 14 degrees so when you've got a swing of somewhere between three or four degrees up to 40 degrees versus 28 down to say 12 or 13 degrees I know which I'd prefer. Mm. Yeah, that's fascinating. (laughs) There was a lot of stories too early in the piece of Aboriginal people sitting in gum trees with fires in the middle. Fascinating. Absolutely, absolutely. So we can't replicate those conditions with nesting boxes. The other thing is that um, those trees retain a higher humidity and in a really dry environment like South Australia, there's bound to be some benefit and we haven't got our heads around that as yet. So a nesting box doesn't offer those same benefits so you need to place it to advantage so you tend to for species like parrots and possums 
um, you place it on the east or southeast side of a tree, away from the hot northerly or westerly sun. So you rely on the canopy to shade it and the bole of the tree to protect it from the western sun. Whereas that doesn't need to happen when you've got naturally occurring hollows. So wherever possible, we need to retain hollows. But where there aren't hollows, by augmenting uh, uh, naturally occurring hollows with artificial hollows, we retain species in the landscape that may not be there otherwise. Have you ever had any success with reptile nesting boxes? Coming from up... We once did a workshop up in Northern Territory and they said we'd really like to do... um, focus on some things like frill-necked lizards. Now, while they will take advantage of a, a cavity, if it is available, they don't tend to nest in hollows they burrow and lay their eggs underground. So some of the pythons, there are lots of geckos. And indeed, if we have any of our nesting boxes, but particularly the bat boxes, because they're smaller and more closed, or some of the partilote boxes, which again are small, if they're not being used, we will often get marbled geckos using them. But we haven't made anything that specifically target reptiles at this point in time. I don't even know whether, I'm I'm sure someone somewhere has, but I haven't seen any work on it. The occasional off-target gecko. Yeah, yeah. Um, But some of the, you asked earlier about some of the exciting things we've seen, uh, seeing kookaburras in the kookaburra boxes, and kookaburras have really high nest site fidelity, so they tend not to move nesting location if they have somewhere that they've been really successful. But kookaburras set up a territory first, so they're more likely to be found. In a territory, after that, they will look for somewhere to breed. And if there's nowhere to breed, they can't breed. You put up a nest box in that sort of environment, or if where they have been nesting has been taken down, which we've seen in the past, you put up a substitute for it, kookaburras will very quickly take over, and that's really exciting. Wood ducks are fantastic. You can have more than a dozen wood duck chicks in the bottom of a box, all these fluffy things. You open it up and you wow, it's just a bundle of fluff, and they all move. We recently did some work with um, Elisa Sparrow, who you also had on the program, and her pygmy possums, and we made up the pygmy possum boxes. We, over a series of... um, probably 12 months we did some research and tested these pygmy possum boxes on some captive animals at Cleland they had and then they went out into the wild and they proved really successful down at Deep Creek so there have been some real successes along those lines as well. There have also been some failures we did some with um, kangaroo island dunarts are a really rare species and, and we've struggled to find them survey them And one of the things that was tried perhaps 10 years ago was actually do some ground nesting boxes for these dunarts, but they didn't prove to be particularly successful. So some successes, some others. In fact, we've recently done a very exciting program with a student, Kelly Meany, who was doing an honours on owls over in York Peninsula. And... um, Owls are an eruptive species, so when prey is abundant, while like most species, they will take advantage of spring, but if prey is abundant, in their case, particularly it's rodents, they will breed whatever time it's year if there's enough food around. And so we put up about a dozen owl boxes over in Mallee country that is being used for pasture because they were just coming to the end of a small rat plague. And uh, we had success almost immediately, I think, of... Um, just over half of the boxes, no, it might have been 
Two thirds of the boxes were taken up literally within a month or so. And something like half of the boxes actually had breeding owls in them. And, and one of these boxes, I think, reared something like five or six young, which is just extraordinary for barn owls, often two, three, maybe four, but this six young. And there were across, I think, six boxes, there were something like 24 or over 20 young anyway, across six of these boxes. And, and the benefit of this, because there's been work done overseas in Britain and also in North America, is if we have places, because we've removed many of these um, hollows from across this part of the country, if we have available hollows into which these barn owls can remove, when if we have them in the landscape, when plagues start to take off, these things breed immediately and they keep breeding as the numbers keep growing. And then so it means the height of the rat plague is not as high as it would be, nor does it last as long. So there are tremendous economic benefits to getting a program like this and a natural predator rather than rodenticides or whatever being used. What, what size uh, area were they bo those boxes in? They are big boxes. They are probably about 650 millimetres long, about half a metre high and about um, 400 millimetres wide. And one of the things, one of the exciting things that came out of the project, historically we would put spouts on to replicate hollows at the front of these boxes on occasion but there's been some brilliant work and this is why we're learning all the time um, platforms at the front of nesting boxes for owl species in particular going back to the Adelaide rosellas that were breeding in our backyard this particular box we ended up fledging eight young from this box this year it was fantastic and I was sitting there one Saturday morning when the last animal actually flew for the first time this animal had never flown. You saw it take off out of the hollow and fly immediately. And that's just all instinct. And you think, that is extraordinary. Owls aren't quite so clever. The young are a, a lot more gangly and, and they need to practice. So they need somewhere to do that. So rather than having these spouts that they need to negotiate, what we've gone to, uh, some of the work overseas, is you now have a platform out of the front so they can climb out stand on the platform and indeed we've added two perches so they can jump from perch to perch because they need to build up the capacity in their wings being considerably bigger bird learn how to use those wings before they are able to fly off so just when you think you've got something nailed something comes along and goes there's a much better way to do it which is great that is great developing those chest muscles wow you've got me think I, was, I almost want to go out and buy another eight different types of boxes I'm well, thinking, just thinking kookaburras owls yeah I was thinking now. with the owls like you know how many boxes six boxes you put up for these uh, there were, I think there were eleven eleven um, I think seven the, seven or eight of them got taken up yeah. and yeah there were there were young in something like six of those boxes in what a an area of I've, I don't this, this was actually across farmland so it was scattered yeah. across quite some distance and there were really specific parameters we were looking for often these rodents will nest in those piles of stone that the farmers have mounded up so um, they can uh, rip their crops up or whatever and that's a really good hiding place for these rodents so they often would put them near that 
Sorry, that's my parrot going, shut up, Rocky. <laughs> Sorry, James. Wow. Um, and, and they needed to be placed at a height where they were under the canopy of the local Mallee that was available because otherwise the 40-plus degree sun would be beating down mm. on these boxes. So they've got special ventilation holes and a range of things, but we felt it was much better than being under the canopy. So, But I understand in the, U, no, in the US, barn owl boxes around and this is part of the work that went towards the project, are placed every 200 metres around vineyards. And what they're trying to get is voles over there, which is a different type of rodent. But they come and predate on the grapes. And in essence, every 200 metres apart, and virtually all of these boxes are full. Now, there's nowhere near the productive capacity over on York Peninsula. But even if there were half a dozen per farm... They wouldn't all be full in drought times, but when there are plague times, all of these things would be full. Mm, just makes you wonder how, like, if those boxes being taken by the owls pretty quickly, you wonder how much they are struggling already to just jump into a man-made structure. And Well, all of this started back in the 50s and 60s in Britain. As the fields got bigger, there was less set aside and, and they were taking down hedgerows as mechanisation improved. Um, in combination with DDT, mm. the crashing of the barn owls. And one of the things they did to get them back is wherever there were channels or culverts or, or natural waterways, they started putting up nesting boxes over there and they had huge success. So that's where it all started, actually, for barn owls was over in Britain. When you mentioned the Kangaroo Island Dunart before, that's we've talked about him with... Um, we had uh, Tracy from so Fame on, yeah. and they're putting a, a lot of money into looking after that animal and studying that animal. It's the most endangered animal over on the island. So that's a nesting box, but they're terrestrial. So that's an, a box on the ground? It was a box on the ground. Some clever junior scientists have been doing some work, and there was a paper we came across that... Um, Dunarts were much more, and this was a different species of Dunarts, but much more likely to use a cavity in fallen timber if it had more than one entrance. Because if it had one entrance and a snake came across it, it was cactus. But if it had multiple entrances, it could get away. So we ended up doing a multi-chambered nesting box that went on the ground to see if the Dunarts would use it. And unfortunately, we never got any record of them using it. Mice and other things used it, just not the Dunarts we were after. <laughs> Can't believe you brought it up again. Yeah, no, sorry. <laughs> sorry about that. <laughs> but that's one of the things of science. We, we tried learned, it. That didn't mind. work. Yeah. We either say, OK, that's not a way to approach that. Or how would we modify it? How could we improve it? But I think we need to learn. It was one of those things, can we capture some of these animals and learn a bit more about them? That wasn't a way to to do it but fame are clearly chasing other ways that have been more successful so are there other boxes where they where you need to put in an escape hole is that something you already use or it's not something by and large we use i mean the only other species that i have regularly heard um don't mind multiple entrances are um owl at night jars and again, goannas coming up trees that might come across an owl at night jar one entrance if it's got another entrance and um one of the way I've seen birders look for owl at night jars is scrape up a tree as I've if they're a goanna yeah. and then the owl at night jar can stick its head out. Now, yeah. not necessarily the best thing to do, but if they have multiple entrances, they've got a way to escape. Most of the species, going back to what I was saying, will choose a hollow that's just large enough mm. for them to get through. 
and exclude most other things. And given, at least in this part of South Australia, we don't have any climbing reptiles that are going to do much damage, as in snakes in mm. particular, then no, it's probably not an issue. But in other parts of the country, certainly on the East Coast, mm. um, yeah, it, it, there may be benefit to that. monitors over there. Um, a friend of mine worked at Little River Sanctuary and they had a, a threatened legless lizard on, right. on the sanctuary, so they laid a heap of tiles down. They didn't get a single legless lizard, but they got a lot of dunarts. Is that right? Under the tiles. When I bought this place, a friend of mine who's a herpetologist said, you should lay tiles down here, and I've got so much habitat here, it's full of shrubs and bark, and I thought, well, why would I do that? Um, and then I was very lucky to, he took me to a tile site, uh, an established tile site for research, and the amount of reptiles and frogs under those tiles blew my mind, and we now have tiles laid throughout the property. It's only early days, but we've seen a few little skinks under there, but we're hoping um, to see what else comes and uses it. We've got the endangered, well, the threatened Adelaide Hills Pigment Copperhead here. We'd love to see if they utilise tiles. Um, it's got a, a big bronze tail that we've talked about many times in the show. So, um, so far, no frogs, no snakes, just a couple of skinks, but you've got to be in it to win it. Absolutely. And, yeah, look, I've seen that really successful in a whole range of places, both here and overseas. So I think it's a really good move. Wood ducks was, a, was another interesting one you mentioned. They, they, the babies just launch out of the tree, so you probably don't want the nest That's too they, high. They fall out, I think. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> you know, bounce, bounce around. Don't, don't put them up on a cliff. Um, <laughs> look, I have heard reports of these things being 15, 20 metres up and um, not boxes. These are natural hollows. And the adults just help them out. They tumble down, they fall up, shake themselves up and off they go. It, it is extraordinary, but they are either so light or it doesn't appear to have any effect on them. I, I am amazed. I have yet to see it myself. I've only heard it reported, but height doesn't really appear to be an issue. Well, uh, yeah, friend of mine, Matt, at Panorama, of all places, um, he had one, I reckon, probably 20 foot up a tree, 15 yeah. foot up a tree. Mm. And yeah, wood ducks in there. And they all just came out and just waddled down the road one day, went a couple of doors up to the swimming pool, and they hang out there now. That's hilarious. Yeah. I'm going to tell you a story. Only three days ago, I was driving down the freeway, just going past the toll gate, and there was a wood duck walking in the middle of the freeway with their babies. Didn't know what else to do. I was driving, so I called AAA. And I just said, yeah, police, um, hi, look, there's a wood duck and it's baby. And she was really nice. And I said, look, I know this is not the number to call, but I didn't know what else to call. Because it's an issue. I mean, not just for the ducks too. Obviously, someone could be like, could screech on the brakes and a truck can, you know, rear end them. But yeah, yeah, don't know what happened there. I had to keep driving, but mm. there you go. They're around. <laughs> yeah, and it's that time of year. We've seen lots of ducklings in the last um, month or so. So One in their car, it'd be handy yeah. just to have... A fauna rescue number in your car to ring. Yeah. Well, I called the emergency number because I thought they could reduce the speed limits. Mm. Um, that might help. Um, now, well, I've been here for two years. I have seen booboo cows here. I've never seen a barn owl here. Is that because they don't have any boxes? No. Um, barn owls are much rarer here. Uh, we've had... Um, they are certainly around. In fact, they have... A he doesn't like us talking that about bird, owls. I know. <laughs> as soon as we mention owls, Rocky goes off. Well, I was going to say, they have a really unpleasant call. It's a bit like yeah. Rocky. Um, and I've, I, when I was living in Turingi, I had them in Turingi. Just a couple of evenings, there was an owl there for two or three nights. But really interestingly, it was when there had been another rat plague further inland and often young dispersed down here. While they are in the hills, they're nowhere near in the same numbers that boo books are. Okay. 
What do I benefit from having a boo book nest up here, a tree hollow? Because I, I do get I do get rats. Obviously, having the animals not a really bad problem. I don't see them out in the middle of the day, but they're around. One of the things about artificial hollows is they're taken up preferentially. Things like parrots, uh, where pro- we've probably seen something like. 80, 90% success rate in the right location. Things get taken up really quickly. Possums, probably 50 plus percent, again, in the right location. But some species take a lot longer to attract. And while we've had boo books, they're not the first species I would encourage someone to get. It's more the sort of box that is for someone that actually knows what they're doing. They've got the right sort of habitat. And you would be a, sort of up on that list. So, yes, putting up a boo book box, and we've changed recently, as I said. We now have the platform and the, the, the two perches so they can jump between and practice. But they are something that takes up a box. But they're not here in anywhere near the same numbers that many of these other species are. And they establish territories, keeping other species out. So if you've got a pair of boo books, there's not going to be much competition other than for that pair okay i know i've got one around so i hear him calling i don't know is it the females call too or is it just the male i don't know i look i think it's primarily the male okay but i'm not sure Um, sure. i hear him calling and i've got a captive one up here and i've never had mine sexed so i don't know whether they love each other or hate each other but i hear Uh, a bit of calling going on and we've seen one down the man cave yeah a couple of times we've been down to the 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 old quarry what we lovingly call the man cave cave. he's just flown out of the cave so i don't know what he's doing Uh, in there again it's a really good shelter in instead of a if they don't have a hollow some of these owls will certainly use caves um it's certainly down in the southeast where there's some of the bats their mast owls and other things use caves down there as well a safe retreat that's elevated away from being threatened because one of the things if they're out in the bush here they'll get mobbed they, yes, the first one we saw, remember we were here when we had Colin here, mm. um, we walked down and, and, yeah, we saw a booble cow just getting mobbed by all the other birds. That's right. They yeah. don't want him around because they know that at night time he'll come and jack them. <laughs> He's a potential threat. So often during the day they'll uh, roost in a really dense bush or they could nest in a hollow or, as yours has done, in a cave. So, yes, where there's a quiet space and they can get out of the way, really happy to do so. Your cave's not the safest place. No, that we've had one cave in at the cave, haven't we? The ceiling caved in in the time that we've been here. I, I used to work at a sanctuary and there was a bat box and we'd always, as part of the tour, shine the torch up in the bat box and talk about nesting boxes. We, the years, what was there for years, we never had a bat in it. Um, has bat box technology improved? Again, a f- fantastic question. We have a range of bat boxes out and we've seen bat droppings in some. I think we've recorded three bats all in the same group of uh, we actually group bat boxes often to get a slightly different microclimate so they can adjust or choose different spaces so we have had micro bats in them but they're in a group again that are harder to attract and one of the things i got a tip recently when i was up in queensland by crushing up their feces with water and then painting it on the bottom of the box apparently it's more likely to attract bats to those boxes so we've gone and done that on a range of boxes this year and i'm waiting to see what the results are whether they've upped the numbers so we've certainly had bats 
but they're not one of the easiest species to attract and typically it's it's years to try and attract them rather than weeks. Often they're a really good thing, particularly house invasions. Sometimes bats get into roof spaces and, and that needs to be managed. Um, sometimes the noise can upset people and it depends on the number of animals, but excluding them is a really good thing. But giving them another option to go to, and again, by placing their scent in a box, you increase the chances that they will find the box and use it as compared to going back to the roof space once you're able to seal it. Okay, that's very interesting. Now, your book here has one of these Adelaide rosellas in the front of it that we've been talking about, beautiful birds, and you've donated this book here and you've signed it and, and it's going out to one of our listeners. It's a bribe to subscribe. That's what we're doing. Mate, thank you. And look, I've got to say, this is a great book and it's not just birds, it's mammals, amphibians, fish, it's got invertebrates in there, um, it's got reptiles, of course. It's a great book. Mate, thank you so much for donating this book. Is there anything else, James, that you would like to add? Because I, I could talk to you for a lot longer. I've got one other question. Please, think, please well. go, Steve. Um, I, I live, I back on to Stoke Gorge Reserve, and we've just put up a couple of boxes, um, ringtail possum boxes, 1,000 square metres, grey box. Yep, grey box woodland. Grey box woodland. What, what would you recommend? Like, Could I go over the top with boxes? Or should I have a certain amount of each type of box? Is there a recommendation out there? Okay, I, I would start with something you're going to see success with. And this is what I say to everyone. And typically, backing onto Sturt Gorge, you're likely to get something like the Adelaide Rosella. And to yep. me, one of the reasons it's on the book, it's one of only two vertebrates that calls, it just calls this area home, so which is just fantastic. And I used to love waking up to its call every morning. So I would start with that and you're likely to attract. One of the things with nesting boxes, we tend to attract common species because they can put up with us as neighbours. Often I will get someone come along to me and say, I want to attract a regent parrot or I want to attract something that's really rare and the reason they're rare even something like a um, purple crowned lorikeet okay one of the reasons they're rare is they don't necessarily put up with us so well as neighbors so for success i would often say go for something that's relatively common and adelaide rosella fantastic where you are or rainbow lorikeets less good because they're in much greater numbers than they were historically they're still lovely wildlife to have around and one of the things we need to recognize is we've changed the habitat so we have the species we've selected whether we chose to do it or not whether it's through ignorance or intention both species of possum brush tail and ringtail and one of the fantastic things i actually had a ringtail possum box up in uh, my backyard on the hill's face and from about the start of June through till early August, I would have a ringtail use it every year. And then once they vacated, the Adelaide Rosellas would move in, oh. would chew up all their dray that they had created in there, make their nesting material, and then they'd have eggs. So while you've got a picture of this is supposed to be for a brush tail or a ringtail or whatever, the species don't recognise mm. that and they can use other boxes. So any of the small, medium parrot or possum boxes are a great start. And typically they're going to go on the eastern or southeastern side to protect them from the weather. Bats, by contrast, again, are a really good thing to put up. And if you get any bat droppings, like I was saying, and paint that inside the box, they go on the north through to the western side of the box because they, being active at night, 
they actually go into torpor during the day. So they drop their body temperature to about two degrees above ambient temperature. So if it's 12 degrees outside, they're 14 degrees. If it's 28 degrees outside, they're 30 degrees. But at the end of the day, they need to raise their body temperature up to about 38 degrees. So if they need to raise their body temperature from say 14 to 28 degrees, they're using an awful lot of energy to do so. So the closer they get to that 28 degrees in order to fly out and be active, the better. So that's why having an, a westerly aspect is much better, particularly during summer, but they will often choose a much colder environment during winter when they are nowhere near as active as they are in summer. So that would again be a good one to go because you've got gray box, something like a pardalote box. So pardalotes, which are a tiny bird, smaller than a sparrow, just fantastic native species. They can eat more than a hundred lerp and psyllids in a minute. So wherever you've got eucalypts, certainly up in the hills, they are just great species to have around. Um, from there, you can get more adventurous. Um, if there's water around, duck boxes we've mentioned. Kookaburras, if you have kookaburras, but they're not breeding, okay, that's another option. If they are breeding, there's probably no point in putting up a kookaburra box, but you can get more adventurous. From there, you could go to owl boxes, but if you stage it, get success, and then become more adventurous and see what you can get. The other thing is those more adventurous species are often territorial species, so that the numbers of them, they're not as mobile through the landscape as, say, rainbow lorikeets or Adelaide rosellas, so they will either have a, um, an area where they breed or they won't, and if they don't, you can provide a great opportunity for them to do so. That's awesome. I love that like, everything seems to relate back to just start small, and then when you start getting success, you sort of you automatically want to grow these sorts of things, anything from a veggie patch to putting bird boxes up. Yeah. Well, I guess in conclusion, Adrian asked if, if I had a take-home message. And my message would be, it doesn't matter how small your space you can attract wildlife. You were mentioning you had a balcony on a second or third story. Okay, you can plant that out for butterflies or you can put out a bird bath. You can attract things. You can see things from there. If you have ground, you can build in. Again, make it bigger. If you've got enough space to put in a frog pond, this is all connected. And the more diverse and complex you can make it, the more wildlife you can attract. Nesting boxes is just one easy but really exciting component of that. But planting native plants, which is the basis for all of this, and getting a complex landscape back. One of the things we tend to lose, particularly in urban environments, is structure. Yes, we have many of the species, but without the structure, animals can't move through the landscape, either vertically or horizontally. Have a look around you, if you have a property. What other assets, it's, you're not an island. What other assets do you have? Are there neighboring trees? Is there a park or a creek close by? If you put in something, can you enhance the assets that are already there? Because we do have some amazing species spaces in Adelaide and we can just make them even better that's an amazing final message that's that awesome. is awesome <laughs> mate I love it Thank I absolutely you so love it much. I know I mentioned your book a lot of our listeners may not be aware we have a Facebook page so that's where they can they can have a look at this book and, and check out the competition we're going to put up mate thank you so much thank you Adrian thank, thank you, you Steve. so much thanks guys thanks for listening